Hey, y'all. Um, tonight, we are starting our Sermon on the Mount series, and so we're going to be in the book of Matthew. Um, we are going to be studying uh, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so I'll give you guys a second to get there. All right, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Capri. I'm Thomas Nelson. I'm the young adult pastor here at Christ Covenant. Really glad to see you this evening. And uh, when we finish tonight, we're going to sing a few more songs. And just want to go ahead and tell you now, every week when we finish, we have, um, we have, we have some incredible volunteers and, uh, and one of our teams of leaders are folks that are on our prayer team, and they kind of line the back walls at the end, and anybody can go and be prayed over. Um, you can pray for yourself. You can pray for something going on with somebody else. Uh, and so I would just encourage you, if anything comes to mind over the next few minutes or already has, just know that there's some folks that are waiting to say, yeah, let's pray about that. And you can be as candid or as guarded as you need to be. Um, and it's just a really safe group of folks that love the Lord that would just love to pray over you when we finish tonight. So I just want to go ahead and tell you that now. So this, uh, this Sermon on the Mount series, I want you to know that tonight is really, um, as we look at the Beatitudes, that's what these nine statements are commonly called, um, the statements of blessing. These nine statements have so much material behind them that you can go and study. In fact, I would say, even without extra biblical resources to help you study, that if you are a follower of Christ, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, contain a lifetime of information about what is the Christian life and how does someone live and breathe and function with Christ as their center. These are the chapters. This is it. This is the magnum opus of Jesus's sermons. Uh, and so, it is the deepest of wells, I would say, and also I would say it's accessible to everyone who calls on the Lord Jesus. So I want us to unpack some of what the Lord has taught us in these chapters, but there's going to be a bunch that we don't get to unpack. Uh, and so just know that um, tonight we're going to unpack a little bit of these 12 verses, but we would be here tonight and tomorrow night and the next night and the next night and who knows how long if we really, really got to the bottom of this well. And that is part of the beauty of the scriptures as a whole, but especially the words spoken by our Lord. So I wanna just let you know, I really think 
The idea here in these first several verses is the idea of Christian flourishing. I think that's the idea. And so I'm going to give you a couple of, a couple of statements here that you'll see up on the screen. Flourishing is the state God desires all his people to live in while surrounded by the sin-broken world. A life of flourishing exists for all followers of Jesus who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. A follower of Jesus living in God's flourishing dwells in an and then I, I, I wrote this word down, and I've read it many times, and uh, it's supposed to be Eden, that's the word, but really smart people put an IC on the end of it, and it's one of those words that I'm just like, I don't know why that's so hard for me to say, but it is. Uh, and so it's an Edenic oasis. So I'll start over. A follower of Jesus living in God's flourishing dwells in an Edenic oasis through which they move through a sin-scorched world, allowing others to see Jesus' effect through them. So tonight, I do want us to talk about happiness. And I want to ask the question, does God care if I'm happy? And does Jesus say anything about it? And he does in these first 12 verses. But I think we'll see something that's bigger and better than that also. And so here's what we're going to do. This week, the next, the, the next three weeks following, we're going to go through chapter 5. Then we're going to take a break, and, uh, and we're going to look at some of the, the parables that Jesus taught. And then we're going we're gonna to go to the Old Testament when it gets closer to the holidays. And we're going to come back to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to finish that. So we should finish chapters 5 and 6 of the Sermon on the Mount before the end of the year. And then 2024, it may sound crazy to talk about these things, but like, when you kind of live by the calendar, like as best I can, um, like then you're planning for 2024. So in 2024, the beginning of that, we will finish this winter when it's not 100 degrees. We will finish Matthew chapter 7. And so we're going to be in and out of this book, but we're going to try to do one chapter at a time. So let's read the opening lines of this sermon one more time. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they, are, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak through your words. I ask that you would speak through your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you empty me of me and let me say what you want and most of all, Father, would you have your way with us tonight as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Do you ever read other Bible translations? Like, do you have like a favorite translation? Um, this was one of the you asked for it 
questions from our series that we just finished last week. We're gonna continue answering those you asked for it questions because a lot of them actually fit into the Sermon on the Mount. So one of the questions was on Bible translations. I love Bible translations. Um, I have like a bunch of Bibles. And so, and I had a bunch of Bibles like before I ever worked at a church. Uh, and, and so some people get real snobby about their Bible translations and they're like, you know, everything from like, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible to like, if you read the message, you're dumb. Like people will say stuff like that. They're mean. Christians can be mean. So you just ignore those people and you like your versions. Okay. I like my translations. Um, some are word for word translations. They're the more, they're the harder to read, but the focus is on accuracy. So like if you were a translator and I was speaking English, I am speaking English. Let's say you were translating in Spanish. You could translate in a few different ways. If you translated word for word, you would accurately translate me, but it would be a little hard for the Spanish person who speaks no English to understand what I'm saying because, um, you know, verbs and subjects are out of order and those kinds of things, but you would still say that's exactly what he said. That's what the ESV that we read from most every week is closer to that type of translation. They focus more on accuracy than they did readability. And so I like the ESV. I like it because I can look at it and I can study the words and I know this is very close to the Greek or Hebrew. This is very close to the original language and I can go back and I can study those words. Um, I like a little NIV too. And so NIV, that's like the eighth grade reading level. It's my speed. And so like, I like that. I like the the NIV, Um, the uh, the new international version. It is, like I said, on an eighth grade reading level. The ESV is on about a 10th grade reading level. The New American Standard Bible is on about an 11th reading grade. Or re- reading 11th graders. It's for them. And so, uh, and so when you get to the NIV, what you're focused on is, yes, they're focused on accuracy, but they also want readability. And so you get, a, you get a stronger blend of readability, and so you might sacrifice a little bit of the accuracy, but you get great readability. So I think the NIV is good to use sometimes. Now, I do love a little message. And if you've never read the message, guilty pleasure, y'all. Tonight, turn off Netflix and just pop open the message and be like, let's see what this has for me. Um, And so Eugene Peterson went back to the Greek and the Hebrew, and he translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into modern English with a focus on readability. And so what he would do is he would go thought by thought. He would read a whole thought, and then he would translate, read it in the original language, and then translate it into very modern day English. And so it is not a go study word for word, but it does give the big picture. So there's your little like two minute summary of what translations are all about. Now I wanna read you this same passage from the message. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. And those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, 
you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get inside, when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds, and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. P.S., that last line, it's like a little cheeky, and that's kind of, that, that's kind of his way. And so anyway, I, I, love the, I love the message. And the reason I read you both of these translations, the ESV and the message, is because People for centuries have had a very hard time understanding the Sermon on the Mount. And so another reason that it's good to read multiple translations is to see what different translators thought of the text. And if there's a big difference in different, different translations, it means people have had a really hard time working with this idea. And so I think that it's important for us to see these two. Now, they're not night and day differences, but I do think we still need a few tools to help us understand the Sermon on the Mount, not just for tonight, but for the next few months as we look at this. And so I think there's a few things we have to understand. One, who is the author? You can't divorce Jesus, the author, from the sermon, or you get something totally different. But two, I think you need to understand the audience, the people, and the time that Jesus taught this sermon in. And then uh, I think three, it's helpful to hear what people throughout history, Christians throughout history, have thought of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's do that in reverse order. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what other people have thought, and we are going somewhere. This is gonna come back to the text, but this is like, it's really important. When you do an opening, this is just a side note, when you go to a church and they're like, here's the beginning of a series, like usually you have to set things up, you have to kind of build a foundation, and this is gonna help us. So uh, let's go with what people through history thought, let's go with the audience, then let's go to the author. So people throughout history, I've had very different views on this sermon. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he read this sermon. This is the guy that said, it is by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that someone comes to Christ. Great soteriology. Like life-changing soteriology, the theology of how one is saved. Like great I would say less than great understanding of this sermon. He read this sermon and said what was later coined as the impossible deal. He said, oh, I see what Jesus did. He taught this sermon, and at the end, it's almost like he said, gotcha, you can't do any of this. I actually think that's like a really bad way to read this sermon. Now, do I think Luther's bad? No, I think he did some amazing things, so don't quote me on that. But I actually think that's like a really bad way to read this sermon. And for a while, people read this sermon through the reformer's lens of, is Jesus teaching a works-based deal here? Well, of course he's not. 
So since he's talking so much about Christian living, he must be saying in between the lines, you can't do any of this, so ha, this is how you fail in all these ways. I actually don't think that's a very helpful way to read it. Another way to read it is many people have read this, and it's turned into uh, prosperity theology. And so the way it starts is retribution theory. You read it, and you say, okay, if I am meek, then I will inherit the earth. And so if I'm not meek, if I'm rude or arrogant, then I won't inherit the earth. And so God will bless me if I am meek, and he will curse me if I am not. And so if I'm meek, then I can kind of bend God's arm, and he's at least got to give me like, at least like a continent. Um, and so like, because the earth is mine. And so like, He's, so we, that's the retribution principle. God blesses the righteous. He punishes the wicked, which is not a completely untrue principle, but once you take it hook, line, and sinker, you run off the rails. And do you know its closest cousin? Its closest cousin is the prosperity gospel, that God can't wait to bless you and make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And what happened after the reformer's main view was this view came out. And so people would read and study the Sermon on the Mount, figuring out how do I get God's blessings? Okay, I will never look at a woman with lust. And one of the blessings is I get to keep both of my eyes. Another blessing is I don't have to cut a hand off. But another blessing, there must be another one out there. God's going to bless me in some incredible way. If you're single, if I do this, if I don't lust, God's going to give me a wife. It doesn't say that. But people have read it that way. And so those are two of the main ways. And then there's a non-Western way um, where most, most writings for the church come from like Western, the Western world. But we do have some from African Christians and we do have some from Asian Christians. And so some of those kind of get uh, a little bit more uh, prosperity views. But also we get this idea of the full gospel. And this is probably the one you're most familiar with. People read the Sermon on the Mount. They don't hear about Jesus going to the cross. They don't hear about my need for salvation. And so they say, this is Jesus' main sermon. And therefore, the full gospel must be wrapped up in it. And so, Jesus must be just a really wise and good teacher with practical ways to live. And that's probably the most common thing that comes out of this. But what if it's not the impossible deal that Luther talked about? What if it's not a set of rules to live by and bend God's arm? What if it's more than good, wise words? And one fellow that I think is a great commentator on this book said the following, and this is a great quote. He said, the sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, shalom? How does one obtain it and sustain it? If this really is these three chapters, Jesus' answer to the question on how do we have human flourishing? Folks, we should... We should know these words backwards and forwards and hold them up against the quality of our lives and see what aligns and what does not. But to 
to have this view that this is the answer to human flourishing and not just a good way to live requires that one be born again. It requires that one know Jesus Christ in light of their sinful self. And then it requires that a person have full submission to the Holy Spirit. Now look, I don't try to find things out about you. People tell me about you. And sometimes I don't even want to know. Like if I'm real tired, I'm like, tell me tomorrow. And some things are like amazing because by and large, you are amazing. And so we'll just say they tell me about your friends. How about that? Um, People will say, do you see what she did at the beach? Do you see what he did when he went out with his buddies? Do you see? And I'm like, oh boy, are we in fifth grade? What are we doing here? Why don't you talk to them? Um, And so they're like, no, you're the pastor. Um, I'm like, well, you're the Christian. Uh, Go talk to him. You're like, we both are, but like, you're the Christian friend. Um, And so like, you should do that. And so here's the deal. There's a lot of us that are Christians in the room. There's not a lot of us that are fully submitted. And to truly live this out, to truly experience human flourishing, we've got to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. We've got to have lordship salvation. That is how human flourishing happens. And so, I'll give you one more line. So our view going through this most amazing sermon will be the flourishing view. This sermon is possible to live and experience only through experiencing the life-giving salvation of Jesus by grace through faith and the working of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And Jesus was preaching this to to a mixed audience. When When he went up on the hill and his disciples followed him, he had people who... He had already called some of his disciples. He had begun a a preaching ministry of repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had been healing tons of people. Just look at the verses preceding this in Matthew chapter four. When he goes up on the mountain, he has his disciples, but also a crowd ends up following him. We see that there's a crowd at the end of the sermon. And so he's preaching to zealots, people that wanted Rome out of there. He's preaching to to folks like Matthew who are still dabbling in tax collecting uh, and working for the Romans. He's preaching to uh, maybe a fair, Pharisee went up there who was a big believer in follow the law and follow my way of teaching the law. He was, there may have been some Sadducees who didn't even believe in a resurrection, but held high, high, powerful religious offices. There could have been a Roman centurion that went up with him. Jesus went up and he preaches this sermon and he preaches it in the current, to the current group in a a present tone, but the whole time the underlying current is This will all be possible once I've done my work on the cross. And so folks, when we hear this sermon, all of this is how Christians are supposed to live. This is Christian flourishing. And so we go to the author. The author of these three chapters, the one who says, blessed, nine different times. And then the one who says, you're the salt of the earth the light on the hill, the one who says this and so much more that we're going to look at was the one who was born supernaturally through a virgin. He grew up without sinning in a sinful world. 
His friend John, who baptized him, had been arrested at this point. He had called his disciples. He started his ministry. What we see overall is the one who's delivering this sermon is both the lion that's talked about in Genesis 49 and the lamb that is talked about in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant and the forever king. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says of Jesus, the one who delivered this sermon, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the man who, who climbed up on that hill, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, in a, in a natural amphitheater setting that he had created at the beginning of time. He climbs in there knowing that from the beginning of time that's where he was going to preach. And he begins to say all of these things that we've read a few times now. So when the unconquerable lamb who is also, the unconquerable lion who is also the lamb for our sins steps out of heaven and takes on flesh and tells us this is how humans were always supposed to be. Ever since the fall, this was the hope that humans would look like this so that the world might see him. And when he goes up on the mountain, I want you to think about it. This is important to know the whole context. When he goes up on the mountain, he delivers three chapters. And in each chapter, he says, you've once heard it said. And he messages, he references something from the Old Testament. And then he says, but I tell you. Where did each of those things come from that he said, you've heard it said, but I tell you that you heard it said part. They came from another man who went up on a mountain to get the words from God and come back down and deliver them to the people. He is the new Moses delivering a new law to God's new covenant people. If we think Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments is delivered, is important. This is the Exodus 20 of the New Testament. The new and better Moses is here. And he's up on the mountain. And he doesn't have to go meet with God because he is God in the flesh. And he doesn't deliver the words to one man. He delivers the words to the masses. And he begins to show a little foreshadowing of what it's going to be like when the veil in the temple is torn in two and access to God is made free for all. And so maybe the sermon should read a little bit different because as he starts the sermon, he opens his mouth. He could say anything he wanted. He's giving the new law. In the first giving of the law, it was, you will have no other gods before me. In this new giving of the law, the first thing he says is you are flourishing when each of these things is happening. He is flipping the script 
So let me read it to you with those being the words. When he saw the crowds, he ascended to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are the mourners because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness because they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers because they will be called the children of God. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are you whenever people revile you and slander you and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven in the same way that people slander the prophets who came before you. Well, many translators use the word blessed or blessed or happy we don't really have a great word in the English language to wrap up what he's really saying back in the Greek. And if you were to take it to Hebrew, what he's really trying to say. And so I think maybe our best word, and I got this from Jonathan Pennington and his great commentary on this, and I agree with him. I think maybe our best word to use for all of this is flourishing. And I think you need to ask, is your life flourishing? And some of you are so stressed with work or your boss or your roommates, and stress is fine. He says you can be flourishing when mourning is happening. But, but are you flourishing? Jesus is certainly concerned with your happiness, but hear me on this. Happiness is measured in moments. Flourishing is measured in seasons and years. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's this, this idea when Jesus is in the garden, he says, not my will be done, but yours. I don't think he was happy in that moment. But flourishing are those who mourn. He was as strong as he could ever be when he said that. Yes, the Lord wants you happy at times when it makes him happy for you to be happy and like he loves you and he wants you happy and he wants me happy at times when it's best for us to be happy, but he always wants us flourishing. Why? Because he knows that he has left us here in this world and has not sucked us up into heaven when we came to faith in him. He left us here. Why did he leave us here? Because the world needs to see this Edenic oasis walking around at their work and in their home and with their roommates and with their friends. The world needs to see a total different picture of what it could be like, regardless of the circumstances. Um, Heather and I last week were talking. I wasn't going to tell you what this was about, but I'll tell you. We were talking last week um, about one of our dogs. We do love our dogs. Um, and so anyway, Daisy and Gatsby, both Boston Terriers. Um, I know you pictured me as a small dog guy. Uh, and so anyway, we love our, we love our Bostons. And, uh, and Daisy had to go to the vet, and she's got a couple of things going on with her, and she's eight. And so we were like, what if they say like the C word with her or something like that? And, uh, and so we both were like, there's never enough time, is there? If she lived eight more years, there would never be enough time. And now that's just a dog. It's not a person. 
There's never enough time. If you've ever left a great weekend with friends or a vacation you just loved, like even, even two more days, there's not enough time. Four more days, it wouldn't have been enough time. Now, if it's with your family, eight more days would have been enough time. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but I mean, in general, I'm just kidding. We love our families. Um, I just knew that would get a little laugh. Uh, and so we need a little levity. But like, usually when things are incredible, there's just not enough time. And Heather, it, she just, her eyes sparked and she said, I was listening to this podcast and they talk about this and they, 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 they talk about what, what if, since God put eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11, what if we've actually been thinking about eternity all wrong? Because in eternity, those, those in Christ will be with God. And, and a bonus is we all get to be with each other in perfect harmony with no sin. And so what if instead of saying like, you know, eternity, what are we going to do all that time? What if we flipped it and we said, what if eternity isn't long enough? What if it's not enough? Because it's that good. And in the same way, what if there's something greater than happiness in this life? In Psalm 1, it says this, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. Listen to this analogy in the middle of the psalm. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This tree, in the middle of a broken world, is still flourishing. I want you to think about the dogwoods that are outside right now. Um, if you're a dogwood lover, they're great trees. We love them in the South. Um, if you're new to the South, welcome and welcome to the dogwoods. Um, we love our dogwoods. They're pretty for about three weeks every year. Um, and so that was another joke. Um, they, they kinda, they're kind of ugly trees, but like they're pretty when they bloom. And so these dogwoods, though, right now with 100 degrees, if you go look at a dogwood, the leaves are shriveled on them. So if you looked at the dogwood right now, you would say, and you asked, is that tree happy? You say, oh, the tree's not happy. It's not happy with this heat. But if you step back and ask a better question, is that tree flourishing? We'd have to say, well, I need to watch it over the seasons and see. I mean, it's not happy today, but like, yeah, every fall it drops its leaf. You know, now that I think back, the last three or four falls that I've lived here, it's dropped its leaves. And, and it does fine in the winter, it didn't like that eight-degree day we had last January, but like it, it did fine in the winter. And, and then come to think of it, every spring, it buds, and then it blooms. And it's beautiful. Right around Easter, it's beautiful. And then the flowers fade, but the leaves spread out, and it creates this incredible canopy. And come to think of it, a few years ago when I moved here, it barely went above the window, and now it's probably two feet above the window. Yeah, so I guess that tree is flourishing. So maybe it doesn't matter as much if it's happy today. Maybe the big question is, is it flourishing? 
And likewise, I think that Jesus says of his followers, not that they receive these, these divine blessings when they're poor or meek or hunger or merciful or pure or peacemaking or persecuted or reviled. No, when a person is walking in Jesus in a broken world, the state of being they exist in, listen to this, is Edenic. They exist by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus on the cross as altogether otherworldly. And so, when a true follower of Jesus walks through this life with all of its brokenness and its difficulties and doesn't flex, but instead is humble and meek, they're flourishing. And the rest of the world looks and they say, there's something different about you because I observed you in that season, not just that moment. And you seem to stand the test. What is it? So are you flourishing? And I want you to look at your life like a dog would for just a minute. Not right this second do I want you to make the full judgment. But I want you to zoom back over the last three or four months. And then I want you to, to zoom back maybe the last eight months, all of this year. And then I want you to, to zoom back even further into last fall. Remember when there used to be football and stuff? I want you to zoom back to then. And then I want you to zoom even further out to last August. And I want you just to kind of do a little inventory. If you were a tree over the last year, and this is a Christian tree, by the way, all right, for this analogy, like, you're, if you are a person of faith in Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, over the last 12 months, no matter what storms have come, no matter how many days have reached 100 degrees, no matter how many days there was drought, no matter how many days it hit 8 degrees, no matter what, all of the seasons, all of the things, looking back over the last 12 months, are you, are you standing taller than you did a year ago? Are you seeing life being produced. Because that's how Jesus starts off his magnum opus. When there's poor in spirit, when there's mourning, when there's a time to be meek, when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness instead of wickedness, when there's opportunity to be merciful instead of vengeful, pure in heart instead of corrupt, a peacemaker instead of a divider, uh, when there's a chance to talk about Jesus, even if it's going to get you in trouble or stand for Jesus when it could get you in trouble, all of those times, in those moments that he puts you in, which are not happy moments, none of those are happy moments. Is there, is there flourishing that's taking place where you realize I'm surviving that storm just fine, and you know it's the Lord working through you. Because if you want to have that otherworldly, flourishing, Edenic state, you can't do it apart from knowing Jesus. 
And just so you think I'm not proof texting here and telling you some health and wealth gospel that's a bunch of garbage, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he wasn't talking only about the next life. He was saying Christians should look different. And he's going to say that so many times in this sermon. Secondly, you can only live in the otherworldly, flourishing, Edenic state when you as a Christian forsake all others. Spoiler alert for when we get to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. Substitute money for anything you want. If you have any other masters in your life, you are not flourishing. You are not showing the world a picture of Christ as you should be. And you're missing out on the blessing and the provision and the protection of the Lord as you could have. And what are you trading it for? What thing is going to love you like Jesus loves you? What thing is going to give its life up like Jesus gave his life up? What thing is going to secure you for all eternity? What thing is going to call you friend and child? What is it that you've traded him for? Because wake up, it's not worth it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. And I just want you even if you need to stop singing for a minute, I want you to open your Bible and I want you to look and I want you to just see if one of these nine things jumps off the page and you sense conviction and you realize, Lord, I need your help in this area. And if anyone here, and I'm sure there are several, who don't have a relationship with Christ, I just want you to know without him, this this is not attainable. And I want to ask you, what is it that you love more than him? I guarantee you there's dozens of people in this room that could tell stories of, I used to love that thing too. And I laid it down for him. And I've pretty much forgotten it. Because he's so much better. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you and your wisdom since your son And he preached these incredible words. And I thank you, Father, that we can flourish when we are poor in spirit. Lord, would you break our spirits if we need it? Lord, when we need to mourn, would you let us mourn and flourish in that mourning and be comforted by you? Would you, Lord, break our pride and let us be meek and humble before you? Lord, would you help us to hunger and thirst for you and not these other temporary things? Lord, Would you help us to be merciful and not vengeful? And let us receive your mercy. Lord, would you help us to be pure in heart? Lord, would you cleanse us from all the nastiness that we put in our lives? And Lord, would you help us to be the peacemakers, the sons of God that we were intended to be as your children? And Father, would you give us courage to stand for you? Jesus, would you move in our hearts and move in this place? It's in your name we pray. Amen.